Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Greetings, everybody. This is Jesse here. And uh, today, with the title of this episode, is uh, called Enter the Little Horn. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be continuing uh, exclusively in Daniel 7. And we're going to be looking at a couple other scriptures, too. Um, and we're going to basically, you know, in the simplest of terms, try to identify what this little horn is. And, um, <clears throat> and we're going to figure out uh, some of the characteristics of this little horn in order to clarify uh, what this little horn is, okay? So, um, and hopefully within some of these characteristics, after um, after this is done, um, hopefully there will be no question. Now, there is another uh, broadcast on here that has done an in-depth study on all of these characteristics. Um, I'm just going to go over them somewhat quick. I'm going to kind of make comments along the way, and uh, we're going to look at Scripture. i got a couple of, of passages I want to point out, and um, and then we will go from there. So, and also I do plan on making another broadcast tomorrow. Um, I haven't really decided on a time yet, um, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'll have my mind made up by the time this uh, call is done. Um, the reason why I'm making a broadcast tomorrow is because I want to cover the 501c3 and uh, how it relates to uh, the ruling uh, that took place on June 26, 2015, which was a ruling by the Supreme Court that... Uh, Homosexual marriage, or the politically correct term homosexual, sodomite marriage, has been legalized throughout all 50 states. And um, <laughs> and it's a pretty profound event, especially uh, those that live in America and those that uh, are that claim to be believers here in America that are in a lukewarm state. Um, it's 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 pretty amazing. So what we're going to do there is we're going to kind of go over some history on how this uh, came about. We're going to discover what's behind this sodomite agenda, and uh, we're going to look at the 501c3 tax exempt status with all these churches because there's a lot of pastors out there that are saying, "I am not going to honor same-sex marriage in these churches," but there are certain guidelines that you must follow if you have a 501c3 status. And it has to be a politically correct guideline. And if you don't follow that guideline, well, good chance is, is you will lose. Actually, that's not a good chance. You will lose your tax exempt status. 
So what does that mean? You're either going to knuckle under and bow to the dollar and bow to the government, or that could be your very final call to come out of these churches. Okay. Um, so anyway, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to do something a little different than I did before, and I'm going to start by uh, just reading um, a, a gospel delivery by Henry uh, Grattan Guinness. This was uh, read... Uh, this was read. Um, this was taken from uh, Romanism and the Reformation. It's like the very last page on the book, and uh, I figured with each broadcast, I'm going to start off by reading this. Um, so, <clears throat> so let's go ahead and get started. Remember that there is only one mediator between God and man; that there is but one sacrifice for sins, offered once for all and forever. Through the one mediator, by the one sacrifice, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You need no mediator between yourself and Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The priest is a false intruder there. Jesus calls you to come to himself. He is both human and divine. He is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Yet without sin, God is in him. He is one with us and one with God. Suffer nothing to come between your soul and him. Suffer no saint, no angel, no virgin, no priest to come between you and Jesus Christ. Go to him for the pardon of all your sins. Make to him your confessions. He can absolve you. And will, yea, does if you truly believe him, if you truly believe in him. Priestly absolution is a lie. It is a blasphemous pretense. The sentence, I absolve thee, whether from the mouth of Romish priests or Protestant ministers, is profane. Be not deluded by it. Your fellow sinner cannot absolve you from the sins you have committed against God. Turn from these idols and vanities. Jesus is all you need. His blood is sufficient to atone and cleanses those who simply trust in him from all sin. Search the scriptures. They testify of him. Come to him that you may have life. His heart is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. None can sympathize as he can. None can help as he. To you, to each one, he says, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Thou alone art all we need, for thou alone art all in all. John 5.39, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have, to have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. <clears throat> uh, how you doing, Walt? Can you hear me okay? Everything good on the other side? Okay, cool, cool. All right, so with that, um, and I'm going to start off each broadcast that I do by reading that. So I think that is very important. That's that's the most important thing because uh, you can st- you can know all the prophecies, you can know about history, you can know about all these things. You can know about the law. You can know about this and that. But 
if you have not Jesus, you're going to go nowhere. He is the bottom line. He is, he is the truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Um, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and in the Psalms, Psalms 119, I believe it says, all thy commandments are truth. So the word of God, the scriptures, is the sole, sole, sole source of truth. We use his, historical documents, which backs up scripture, because historical documents proves the prophetic fulfillments throughout history. Okay, and this is exactly what we're going to discover tonight. And um, and the next study we do um, after Sunday, after tomorrow, is um, we're going to be looking at the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel. And we're going to get that cleared and out of the way. So, like I did in the last broadcast, I'm going to read the section in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, 7 verse 7 to 7, 8, skipping down to 19 through 25. Then we're going to read, read Revelation 13, 1 through 10, because we're going to be just focusing on this specific beast, which is linked to the little horn, okay? The little horn, not the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7. I, I think a lot of people kind of make that mistake there. Um, and it's the little horn, which you will see that... Uh, is connected to the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13. We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2.1. There are some little characteristics that I want to bring up and uh, that explain why this little horn has risen. <laughs> Roughly, I would have to say, what, almost, what, 1,500 years ago now? Maybe 1,600 years you know, there's, you know, I mean, there's there, there's different years that uh, coincide to the beginning or the rise of this beast. It started up slow, it started up weak, but it grew, and it grew, and it grew, okay? Um, which is why there's a lot of uh, discrepancies about the rising of this beast, because some might say, oh, Pope Vigilus was the first one. That is very true, and, you know, uh, and the Ostrogothic kingdom, the last kingdom, which we will get into, did retreat, but he came, but it came back, okay? And then it finally fell after a couple years later. So some attribute the starting date for the rise of the Slow Horn at 606 A.D., okay? Some attribute it to 538 A.D. What I believe, personally, is I think both those time periods have a significant um, aspect. And we're going to go over that, so just bear with me. There's a passage in Zechariah 5 that I think is very interesting that's going to kind of go further along in identifying a specific portion in Revelation that talks about a woman that rides a beast, because it kind of goes together. Um, and we have to uh, identify these things. So, again, um, if you got eSword up, pop up your eSword. You can follow along with me, or you can just listen, take notes, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Daniel 7, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And again, if you followed along with me on the, on the, on the uh, last broadcast, you would have discovered that this is Rome. Okay, this is the pagan Roman Empire. <clears throat> 
and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, so three of these horns are going to be plucked up, are going to be taken out of the way, basically. Okay. <clears throat> then I will know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron. Okay, think back of the iron and clay, or the two legs of iron uh, on Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The statue dream, okay, that was Rome, and his nails of brass. Brass was the kingdom of Greece, so there's kind of an amalgamation here. You know, I guess you can kind of say it's like a mutant beast, <laughs> okay? Um, you know, because Daniel can't really describe what this beast looks like. So, um, so this has an element of Grecian. More than likely, I think, it's Greek philosophy. As a matter of fact, evolution stems from Greek philosophy. Okay. So we have kind of a Greek philosophy amalgamated in with this beast, with this fourth beast. <clears throat> because also how fitting it is that in the New Testament you see passages like uh, to the Jew and the Greek, you know, you know the Jew and the Greek. Paul makes reference of those two uh, words all the time, Jew and the Greek. You know, that's because Greek philosophy was and was relevant in that time. Um, and also the Greek language, you know. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of discrepancies about the, the, the Greek translation of the New Testament, but you got to remember there was also two different types of Greek languages. There was a Greek language for the common people, which was Koine Greek, and it was a Greek language for, you know, the enlightened ones, so to speak. Um, verse 20, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, who look, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Yeah, it was very proud. It was very, it was a very uplifted, this is a very uplifted horn. And again, these kings, these three kings were uprooted, you know, within a time frame that this little horn rose up, okay? <clears throat> I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints, this is verse 21, and prevailed against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. Now here we have the description and the definition of the symbol of a beast. Okay. Um, you see it all over the world. You know, like, for example, America is represented by what? An eagle, right? Um, you know, America has a tendency to rep uh, now there's some discrepancies about this, but a lot of people claim that um a bear represents Russia. Um, 
Some people say it's no, it's, it's a rose that represents Russia. There's whatever. But you get the gist that there's animals that there's animals or beasts in nature that represent nations even to this day. So this is this should no, this should come as no surprise that this fourth beast is defined. This beast is defined as a kingdom. It says it right there. You cannot deny that. So the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. <clears throat> and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three, three kings. So here we have the clearest definition of this other that rises after these ten kings. Okay, This little horn is going to rise up. He's going to subdue three kings, and he's going to be different from the first. Okay? How is it going to be different? Well, and how is Rome basically different? Because this actually applies to pagan Rome, too. Because you got to remember there was an empire named Constantine. Okay? You know, and Constantine basically incorporated a religio-political empire. Okay? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece was always always had the mindset of a of separating the religious from the political. But here, you know, especially in the late periods of the pagan Roman Empire, uh, things started to change, and that it became a conglomerate of religio political status, meaning a combination of both what people would call today church and state. All right. And this king that rises after the ten, okay, would also be different in that he would be like a priest king. He would be the head of a religious order, a religious system, and he would have rule over his subjects. You know, he would have political rule as well. Okay. Um, now, the only area that this has happened, because a lot of people like to throw in the Eastern Empire. Well, there wasn't no, there wasn't a, there wasn't a division of ten king of ten kings in the Eastern Empire. This happened in what? In Rome, which was the Western Empire. So this, which was Europe. So that's where we have to look. Okay. And I think this is where some history is kind of distorted as to confuse people and to thinking, no, um, this little horn here in Daniel 7 represents Islam, because you hear that a lot now, okay? But you've got to remember, this, these ten divisions, these ten divisions came out of the Western Empire. It came out of Rome. It came out of Europe. It didn't come out of the Eastern Empire, okay? So that's one thing we have to bear in mind here, because there's a lot of confusion going on, there's a lot of deception. And that's the very first thing that Jesus said when his disciples asked, is, what shall be the signs of thy coming? And Jesus says, take heed that no man deceive you. That's the very first thing he said. So what is going to be the main focus here? What is Satan's main focus? It's deceiving 
That's deceiving God's people. For if it were possible, he shall deceive the very elect. Okay? So deception is the name of the game in the days and times we live in. Okay? Um, so, so again, this little horn, or this king, would rise up and then subdue three of these kings. Okay? And in Daniel 7.25, says, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. Then it says he will change times and laws. You can't change times. You can't, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, time is time, okay? You may think you can change times, but you can't, no matter how powerful you think you are. And he shall think to change times and laws, Okay? And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Now, the time, times, and the dividing of time um, has a numerical value of it. Okay, uh, time represents one one portion or one year. Okay, times with a with the s represents two. Two plus one is three, and the dividing of time, one year, is a half. So you have three and a half years. Now, in Ezekiel and in Numbers 14, you will read that there is a principle to follow in regarding to time prophecy. All right? And this principle is you take one day for a year. Okay? Numbers 14 mentions it, and, and Ezekiel is it's, it's mentioned. Um, I'll have to pull up the scriptures um, uh, to show you that. But um, it is in there, and that is basically what was, what was the unanimous aspect throughout all of history, is that they recognize this day-for-a-year principle. Now, there are some today that applies, that, that applies the day-for-a-year principle even when that same scripture uh, really specifically talks about oblations, and that I'm talking about Daniel 8, um, which has no bounds on these, on these time prophecies. So when you take three and a half years, you divide it into days, you'll come to 1,260 days. Revelation talks about 1,260 days. Revelation also talks about 42 months which prophetic time is 360 days, which also equals up to 1,260 days. So when you take that 1,260 days, each day for a year, you come to 1,260 years. Okay. And, um, and what you have is basically you have a rule of this little horn that is 1,260 years, not a three and a half literal years as what is proposed throughout virtually 99.5% of all denominations out there, okay? And uh, it's just simply not true, okay? And um, and there were a lot of things that were in the works to bring that about. So, so that's basically, we have some of the characteristics here, okay? We have a horn, we have a little horn, which is a king, and he rises up. When he rises up, he subdues three of them. 
okay? And this king is different from the previous kings because it it has enmity towards God, okay? It speaks great words against the Most High. So this so this king is going to have a religious aspect to it. Um, it's going to persecute the saints of the Most High. And also, when you look up on and on Daniel seven, that's not all, because he makes wars with the he makes war with the saints until the ancient of days come, which means until the second coming of Christ. So from this time, when this time period where this little horn rises up until until probation's done, until the door is shut, okay, until judgment falls on this individual or on this uh, seat, okay, or on this kingdom, this beast or this king is going to make war on the saints. You know, now it seems like more it's it, it's kind of leading back up to physical persecution, but really what's going on now in the, in the world today is he is so well cloaked, okay, that he is basically warring, he's warring after the mind, okay? You know, he's warring after the mind because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and high places and... You're going to find out that the dragon gives this beast its seat and power and great authority, and so, and um, and so there's a lot to identify here. So let's go ahead and re to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, one through ten. Okay. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now you're going to see you're going to see some very interesting similarities here. Okay, between the little horn and this beast. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. And if you further read on in Revelation, you will realize that the sea represents a multitude of peoples, nations, kindreds, tongues, these types of things. And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority. So this beast is going to want to exercise authority. Now also, what do you realize here? Well, you see the same characteristics. You see the same animals basically in this soup amalgamated. Okay, and you, if you remember what the leopard was in Daniel 7, it was Greece. So it's going to have a Greek mindset. It's going to have Greek philosophy. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. That was Medo-Persia. Um, it's going to have, and Medo-Persia had a uh, Mithraic uh, aspect to it, a Mithraic-type religion. So this little horn, which is described as a beast in Revelation 13, is going to speak in Mithraics, which kind of stems from to Gnosticism, okay? And also, if you read in Revelation, I think, chapter 2, you see something about the Nicolaitans, okay? That's another aspect of Nicolaitans, Gnostics, Mithraics, all go hand in hand. And this was actually, the you know, a religious aspect of 
the people of Medo-Persia. And his mouth has the mouth of a lion. Okay. Well, who was the lion in Daniel 7? It was Babylon. So this beast is going to speak according to the mouth of Babylon. It's going to have Babylonian doctrine in it. It's going to speak Babylonian doctrine. It's going to speak confusion, because that's what Babylon means. <clears throat> and also, if you look at you know, if you look at the whole world today, you know, don't we have don't we have Greek philosophy today? I mean, again, evolution spawned from Greek philosophy. Okay, um, we have Mithraics. You know, we have Mithra. You know, we have the Mithraic religion going on again in the form of Gnosticism, which is cloaked in Christianity. So it's a counterfeit Christianity. But when you pull back the mask, you're going to see it's nothing short of Mithraics. And you have the aspect of Rome. You know, uh, our our entire our entire system, especially here in the United States and all throughout the world, uh, our entire judicial system and um, executive systems, executive, you know, the the way politics are ran are stemmed from Roman um, ideals. Okay. <clears throat> and also what you gotta take into account is this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Okay. And when you look at Daniel seven, how many heads do you see there? Well you had the lion, which is one head, you had Medo Persia, which is which is another head, that's two. You had the leopard beast, which is Greece, that has four heads. Okay. That's Two plus four is six, and he had the terrible beast, and that's seven. Okay. Now, if you define scripture with scripture, one of these heads was wounded. Was was wounded to death. <clears throat> one of these heads were wounded to death. Well, obviously, we don't have the Babylonian Empire ruling anymore. We have spiritual Babylon ruling right now, but literal Babylon, you know, out of Iran is not going to rise up again, for Scripture said it will never rise up again. Um, you have Medo-Persia. They're not ruling anymore. You have Greece. They're not ruling anymore. Then you have this different kingdom. You have Rome. Mm, well, the pagan Roman Empire is not ruling anymore, but did the Roman Empire totally fall? No, it didn't. It was divided. Okay? So this head, somewhere down the line of history, is going to receive a mortal wound. And where does this mortal wound come from? Well, it comes from the little horn, because the little horn is being defined here in Revelation 13. The mortal womb is attached to the little horn, which is attached to the specific head of Rome. Let's see. So, 
And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beasts. Okay. So, and that word wandered, you know, it's a very tricky word. That word wandered, basically, it uh, all the world will have, like, a collective mindset towards the beast. With even re- realizing it or not, they will be adapting a mindset. They will be thinking like the beast. They will be wandering after the beast. Okay? This is why Second Thessalonians talks about a delusion. Okay? Um, when this wound is healed, all the world wanders after the beast. Okay? They start accepting this beast's ideals, which is really, it comes from the mouth of the dragon, which is Satan, which is the devil, which is the serpent of old. Okay? So, there are people out there that might not even realizing that might not even realize they're wandering after the beast. And this is why they're, I mean, it's a very, very, very short group of people. It's a minority that's talking about these things. So that hopefully those that are involved in the system will hear these broadcasts from me or from uh, uh, the individual in the chat room, you know, Walt, or uh, from Hour of the Truth, or even looking at videos like Walter Weiss or whatever. I mean, there are some, there is information out there that will hopefully break the chain, the bondage that this beast has got you wandering after him with. Because what people fail to realize when they're wandering after this beast without realizing it or not, they are actually giving homage to the dragon. And that's scary. It's a very scary thought. Because the devil ain't going to come to you in pitchforks and a horn and a you know, and a scary-looking being, okay? He's going to come to you as an angel of light, and his ministers are going to appear to you as ministers of righteousness, okay? And in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. That word Christ means anointed one, okay? So you have ministers out there on these pulpits claiming that they are anointed of God, okay? And they are feeding these messages to the flock. They are deceiving many. Okay? So, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And it was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. Isn't that the same thing we read in, in Daniel 7? About the little horn? And blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Forty and two months divided into days is three hundred and sixty days, or one thousand two hundred sixty days per three hundred sixty days per month. Forty-two months, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. <clears throat> so, or one thousand two hundred and sixty years. Now. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So, he's going to blaspheme God, going to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. So what's his tabernacle? Well, 
if you go to Daniel, I believe, Daniel chapter 11, and if you look at the aspect that, you know, God's glorious holy mountain, those that are part of his kingdom, is, you know, the body of Christ, okay? And so he is going to blaspheme the body of Christ, essentially. Okay? He's going to blaspheme the tabernacle. So where is this power actually going to come from, it seems like? Is it going to come from someone outside the church who is an open antagonist of Christ, or is it going to come from within? Okay. We'll get into that. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear he that leadeth into cap captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So not only is this individual going to receive this wound or this kingdom is going to receive this wound, but he led people into captivity. He led people into bondage by forcing people to be subjected unto him. So into captivity he will go. He killed many with the sword. He made war with the saints. And with the sword he will be killed. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. Okay. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to see some more characteristics here. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. <clears throat> this is very interesting because where was Paul when he was writing these letters? He was in prison in Rome. Okay. When he was writing his epistles, he was in prison in Rome. You can read that, you can read about that in the book of Acts. Alright? So when he was addressing the Thessalonians here, this wasn't the first time he addressed them. That's very key. Okay? Because this is what a lot of people miss. Now, I'm going to start from verse 1. I'm going to go to verse 12. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter and from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Okay, so he is talking about a coming and our gathering together unto him. And in verse 2, it is explained in a different way. It's called the day of Christ. So he is addressing the Thessalonians here in, in a letter, and he's saying, let nobody trouble you, for as that day of Christ is at hand. Okay, because he's not at, he's not at hand yet. It's not near. In verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Okay. So, here we have more clues. All right. 
Again, here we have Paul now saying, let no man deceive you by any means. So obviously there's deception going on in Paul's day. Okay, And obviously there's deception going on in Paul's day because here are people going around and saying, oh, the day, day of Christ is at hand, the day of Christ is at hand, to Stephen the Thessalonians. And here Paul is writing a letter saying, no, 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 no. First, these things have to happen. Okay, There has to come a falling away first. Falling away means an apostasy. So, and some like to attribute this as, you know, the mystery of iniquity creeping into the churches by way of the Nicolaitans and Simon Magus. That's fine. Um, and there's others that like to attribute that to, you know, the, the reign of Constantine and his intermingling of paganism with Christianity or mixing the holy with the profane. Okay, that's fine. I can see that. Because either way, is the falling away represents an apostasy. There are those that will say, no, the falling away means a falling away from this earth, meaning a rapture. I've actually heard that. <laughs> because that's how they justify this happening. The falling away means some kind of a rapture, and then the man of sin is revealed. I mean, I mean that's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. There's only one other time in the Bible that that phrase son of perdition is used. And that is in reference to Judas Iscariot. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. Okay. So again, I have to ask you, is this being, is this is, is this king or succession of kings? Is this kingdom? Is this system? going to come from outside the church? Or is this system going to come from within the church? Going to come from the inside? Because Judas Iscariot was a disciple of Christ, wasn't he? He was also called the son of perdition. That phrase, son of perdition, can also represent a plural form, because when you look at that word, it also means children of destruction. Perdition means destruction. Okay? So obviously, this doesn't have to include just one single individual at the end of time, as what many people presume, but a collective group, these children of destruction, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, here's where a lot of people mess up again, because they like to attribute this temple of God as a physical, rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem. What did Jesus say in Matthew 23? Behold, your house. Notice how he said to the Jews, your house. It wasn't his house anymore. It wasn't his, it wasn't his father's house anymore. He said, your house. It's left unto you desolate. For God does not dwell in the temple made with hands. First Corinthians, it talks about you, as in the collective body of Christ, are the temple of God. Okay? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So again, where does this man of sin come from? He comes from within the church. So you see why this is a religious slash political entity? Do you see why this is a religio-political entity, a amalgamation of church and state, a paganized
Christianity. The son of perdition comes from within the church. It does not come from without. So we can rule out Islam. We can rule out Islam. Are they are they a antichrist? Obviously, they are an antichrist. I mean, they, I mean, they blaspheme God all the time. You know, they totally deny Jesus Christ. You know that you know God doesn't have a son and these types of things. I mean, I get that. You know, I mean, th- th- there are many antichrists, and those many antichrists also is attributed to a succession of kings. So there are antichrists. You know, basically, let's say little antichrist serving the main one, <laughs> okay? And it's the main one that comes from within the church, from within Christianity. Verse 5. Now, this is very important because a lot of people like to miss this verse for some reason, and this is why I brought up this at the beginning, is that there were people deceiving the Thessalonians, okay? And Paul had to remind him something. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. So there's something withholding this man of sin to be fully manifested. There's something holding it back. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's already working. But there's something restraining it. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay? So after, after this restrainer is taken out of the way, then this little horn... This wicked one, this man of sin, will be revealed. This, these children of destruction, the, the, the Judas priest, son of perdition, this wicked would be revealed. Okay, and uh, the Thessalonians knew who this was. <laughs> All right, because Paul told them, "Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things." And he goes on to explain what he told them. Okay, <clears throat> and obviously, this the revealing of this wicked is going to start off gradual and it's going to grow. Okay, it's not going to start off super all powerful and everything right off the get go. It's going to be a process because obviously, you know, this wicked being revealed is going to happen right after after the let is taken out of the way. And we're going to figure this out here in just a moment. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and I apologize for the big booms in the background, those are fireworks, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. So power, signs, and lying wonders are going to precede this individual or this collective of individuals or the system, if you will. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, and then that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, they, that they might be saved. Okay, so again, what's going to be the center focus here? You're going to have 
the truth and you're going to have the lie. And what is the definition of truth in the Bible? Again, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Okay? Thy commandments are truth. Okay? And I'm talking about all ten of them now. Okay? Thy commandments are truth. Well, they don't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so what happens? Well, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. They want to believe a lie. So they're going to, so God is going to give them a lie. Because God said he's sending the strong delusion. There you go. That they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so... One thing we need to identify is what this restrainer is. Okay? And so, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, it is said that, that Paul said, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Okay? And now you know what what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now let us and will let until he be taken out of the way. Is this restrainer the church? Is this restrainer Michael the archangel? You know, is this restrainer the Holy Spirit? No. We're gonna see what was unanimous. I'm not gonna go into huge detail about this. Um, I'm just going to uh, read you um, a comment from an old reformer by the name of John Wesley. I think his first name was John Wesley. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, well, was it John Wesley? I believe it was John Wesley. Um, and um, let's see. So we're okay. Seven. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. So, John Wesley comments regarding this. Um. um restrainer, and we're going to also look at Adam Gill or John Gill, and Adam Clark. And uh, so we can have a kind of some cross-confirmation here. These are individuals that were, you know, that were called like reformers. They were Protestants. They they knew, they had, they studied the scriptures very feverishly. And they knew what this individual was. And it has now been forgotten. And this is what needs to be brought back. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so John Wesley replies to Second Thessalonians two seven comments on it as follows quote 
He will surely be revealed for the mystery, the deep secret power of iniquity, just opposite to the power of godliness already worketh. It began with the love of honor and the desire of power and is completed in the entire subversion of the gospel of Christ. This mystery of iniquity is not wholly confined to the Romish church, but extends itself to others also. It seems to consist of human inventions added to the written word, more outside performances put in the room of faith and love, other mediators besides the man Christ Jesus, the two last branches, together with idolatry and bloodshed, are the direct consequences of the former, namely the adding to the word of God, already worketh in the church, only he that restraineth, that is the potentate, who successively has Rome in his power. The emperors, heathen or Christian, the kings, Goths or Lombards, the Carolonian or German empires. So here's uh, John Gill. Okay. Now, on the restrainer. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That is the Roman Empire and Roman emperors, and which were by degrees entirely removed, and so made way for the revelation of this wicked one, and which was done partly by Constantine, the emperor, receiving the Christian faith, supposedly, partly, whereby the Roman Empire as pagan ceased. And by increasing the riches of the church and feeding the pride, ambition, and covetousness of the bishops, especially the bishop of Rome, and next by removing the seat of the empire from Rome to Byzantium, which he called Constantinople, here the Greek emperors continued in succession, and neither they themselves nor even their exarchs resided at Rome, but at Ravenna. So what happened? <laughs> the emperors weren't ruling at Rome anymore. So what did that do? Well, that eventually gave way to something else to come within, come in its place. And neither they themselves nor even their exarchs resided at Rome, but at the Ravenna. So that way was made for Antichrist to come to his seat. And there was nothing to rival and eclipse the grandeur of power and glory of the Roman popes. And that which let was, and that which let was also taken out of the way, by the division of the empire, by Theodosius, given to his elder son, Arcadius, the eastern, and to the younger, Honorius, the western parts of it. The eastern empire was in process of time seized upon and possessed by Mahomet and the Saracens. And the western empire was overrun by the Goths, the Vandals, the Huns, and became extinct about the year 476. <coughs> and Augustulus, the last of the Roman emperors, who was obliged to abdicate the government by Odoacer, king of the Heruli, when the kingdom of the Lombards took place in Italy. And afterwards, that was translated to Charles the Great, king of the French, so that there was nothing more of the Roman Empire remaining than the bare name, as at this day. And by this means, the popes of Rome got to the height of their power and glory. So again, this was a gradual strengthening you know, but there was a time where it rose and it did rise up, but it didn't have, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't a super strong entity when it first came into political temporal power. 
And at this day, and by this means, the popes of Rome got to the height of their power and glory, which is meant by the revelation of the man of sin. Okay, that was um, a John Gill. Let's take a look at what um, Adam Clark had to say. There is a system of corrupt doctrine which will lead to the general apostasy already in existence. Okay, so here, here again, kind of confirming the same thing. But it is a mystery. It is as yet hidden. It dare not show itself because of that which hindereth or withholdeth. But when that which now restraineth shall be taken out of the way, then shall that wicked one be revealed. It will be the manifest. It, it will then be manifest who he is and what he is. See the observations at the end of the chapter. Okay, now... Matthew Henry. Go ahead and see what Matthew Henry had to say regarding this matter. <clears throat> Something hindered or withheld the man of sin. Now bear in mind, okay, Matthew Henry is a very, very popular commentary. And virtually every... <laughs> you can go... As a matter of fact, go to a Go to a megachurch one day and ask the pastor there if they have a copy or if they have in their possession in their library. Just ask them, you know, you know, conversation-wise, if they have a copy of the uh, Matthew Henry commentary. And most of them will say, yes, they do. And that's the, that's the confusing part about it. Because listen to what Matthew Henry says. Something hindered or withheld the man of sin. It is supposed to be the power of the Roman Empire. But here they're saying it's the Holy Spirit or the church. And most of them have this commentary. Which the apostle did not mention more plainly at that time. Okay, he kind of basically, kind of, you know, put clues in the way. Because if he would have said, oh, it's the it's Roman Empire, if Paul would have said that, then he would have done great harm to the body of Christ, and it wouldn't have, do, it wouldn't have done him any service because he still had work to accomplish. He still had more epistles to write. And God was going to make sure that he completed his work. Something hindered or withheld the man of sin. It is supposed to be the power of the Roman Empire, which the apostle did not mention more plainly at that time. Corruption of doctrine and worship came in by degrees, and the usurping of power was gradual. Thus, the mystery of iniquity prevailed. Superstition and idolatry were advanced by pretended devotion and bigotry, and persecution were promoted by pretended zeal for God and his glory. The mystery of iniquity was even then begun. While the apostles were yet living, persons pretended zeal for Christ, but really opposed him. The fall of ruin of the anti-Christian state is declared. The pure word of God with the spirit of God will discover this mystery of iniquity, and in due time it shall be destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. Signs and wonders, visions and miracles are pretended, but they are false signs to support false doctrines and lying wonders, or only pretended miracles to cheat the people. It's starting to become very interesting. It's like when the question is like, what's going on here? Pretended miracles? and, and I mean, could this include apparitions? Yeah and the diabolical deceits with which the anti-Christian state has been supported. 
are notorious. The persons are described. Who are his willing subjects? Their sin is this. They do not love the truth. Okay? The subjects now of this, of these persons, of this little horn, of this man of sin. They do not love the truth, and therefore do not believe it, and they were pleased with false notions. God leaves them to themselves. Their sin will follow, of course, and spiritual judgments here and eternal punishments hereafter. These prophecies have in a great measure come to pass and confirm the truth of the scriptures. This passage exactly agrees with the system of popery as it prevails in the Romish church and under the Romish popes. But though the son of perdition has been revealed, though he has opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped and has spoken and acted as if he were a God upon earth and has proclaimed his insolent pride and supported his delusion by lying miracles and all kinds of fraud, still the Lord has not yet fully destroyed him with the brightness of his coming, that and other prophecies remain to be, be fulfilled before the end shall come. So here's another one. <laughs> okay. That, that acknowledges that this hindrance, this restrainer, was not Michael the Archangel, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Church, but it's pagan Rome. It's the Caesars of Rome. And once the Caesars of Rome are taken out of the way, then papal Rome will, fall, will, will soon follow thereafter. Even Matthew Henry, in his Romanism and the Reformation, uh, makes mention of this too. Um, that again, that all of the history—I mean, even the church fathers. Now, 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 here's one to ponder. A lot of these people will say, "Oh, the church fathers taught the rapture." You know, they taught the pre-tribulation rapture and these types of things. Well, if they taught the pre-tribulation rapture, what were they doing saying that the restrainer was the Caesars? Because they were all saying the same thing. Look at their writings. I mean, it is unanimous from the early church all the way up through the period of the Albigenses, the Waldenses. <laughs> uh, I mean, and all prior to the Reformation, to the Reformation and beyond, they were all unanimous as to what this restrainer was, folks. It, it, it wasn't Michael the Archangel. It wasn't the church. It wasn't the Caesars. This restrainer, <laughs> this restrainer was, I mean, this Restrainer was the Caesars. And after the Caesars were taken out of the way, this entity, which would continue the Roman Empire, but in a different mindset, it was divided, yes. But, this, this, but the mindset shifted into a variation of Christianity that does not belong to God. And so, therefore, it's pagan. It is not Christian. And these popes of Rome are at the head of it. And they sit at the seat, claiming themselves to be God, sitting amidst the people of God, 
the temple of God, claiming to be God. I know this is hard to believe for some because people revere this guy. Now, Pope Francis, I mean, they revere him. They revere him as as a remarkable individual. They revered John Paul II. Benedict was not really that popular, but they <laughs> they revered John Paul II as very a very loving man. You know, so well, how can this guy who's doing so much good for the world be the Antichrist? But see, what's going on is is this war which started out as a physical war of bloodshed and it's going to revive itself, that's coming, has been switched to a psychological warfare. And so here are these Christians that are looking for an observational system, but they don't know that (laughs) the king of the north that is mentioned in Daniel 11 will plant his palaces and his tabernacles in the glorious holy mountain, in God's church. Do you know other Bible translations actually change that word in into phrases as to at or and? Now, is there, I mean, there's a difference between in and at and and, isn't there? By placing, replacing the word in with at, well, that totally takes away from the spiritual aspect of what that glorious holy mountain is which is Mount Zion, which is the heavenly kingdom, which is those that belong to the true body of Christ, belong to. <laughs> and this son of perdition, this man of sin, plants his tabernacles in the glorious holy mountain. You can find that in Daniel 11. And then look at the NIV, and look at the NSV, and look at the difference. One little word, one little two-letter word, makes a whole lot of difference. So now we're going to get into some more characteristics here. We're going to kind of just go through them rather quickly um, with some little comments here, by the way, you know, through the whole aspect here. I got these characteristics from remnantofgod.org. They, he lists 26 characteristics, okay? Um, I'm only going to list a, a few of them, the more, prof, the more profound ones, but all of these characteristics defines this um, system, okay? So Daniel 7.24, the uh, first characteristic is Antichrist will destroy three complete nations out of the original ten of fallen Rome. Daniel 7.24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Daniel identifies immediately that the horns in this vision actually refer to kings. For further confirmation, later in Daniel 8.20, we see the two horns on the ram Daniel sees in vision are in fact the two kings of Media and Persia. When pagan Rome fell in 476 A.D., it resulted in the formation of ten separate kingdoms. Three of these ten kingdoms rejected the idea of a universal Catholic faith that was both religious as well as political, so as to better control the people of the fallen nation of Rome. They were annihilated for protesting against such an evil entity, which were 
the Heruli, nation was annihilated in 493 A.D., the Vandals in 534 A.D., and the Ostrogoths, he says 538 A.D. Mm, there is kind of a uh, misunderstanding there, um, because, again, the Ostrogoths were, yes, they retreated. They were defeated in 538, but they weren't completely annihilated, okay? The Ostrogoths were a, a headache, to this uh, little horn. They were. And they were eventually defeated. So I can understand 538 being the initial mark of this um, overthrow of the Ostrogoths. But I think it was 546 or 5, 546 to 550 is when they were finally done. Okay. Um, and actually, I think it was Gregory the first in 606 AD um, who was the first pope that uh, basically didn't have to deal with these three kings because they were already uprooted. So, in 538 AD, I mean, I might have my history a little bit off there. I'm going to have to look at look into that a little more. But I but I know for a fact that the Ostrogoths were not completely destroyed in 538 AD. They were destroyed, yes, partially. They retreated and they came back with vengeance. You know, and um, so I just wanted to bring that out. But it was still, this little horn did eventually rid Europe of these three horns, these three kings. In 538 AD were the final of the three kings that would be subdued just as Daniel prophesied. With the fall of the Ostrogoths in the year 538 AD, the political entity we today refer to as a Roman Catholic institution began its official reign as the last part of this fourth beast mentioned in the prophecy of Daniel. And the ten horns that came to be after Rome fell, which were the Alemannes, which is now called Germany, the Visigoths, which is now called Spain, the Franks, which is now called France, the Suaves, the, the Suaves, which is now Portugal, the Burgundians, which is Switzerland, the Anglo-Saxons, which is England, the Lombards, which is Italy. Okay, and these these ten horn these seven horns here ended up capitulating. They ended up falling in line. <laughs> so, um, in the book of Daniel, page one one hundred nine, this is a commentary quote: "The three divisions which were plucked up were the Heruli in four ninety three, the Vandals in five thirty four, and the Ostrogoths in five thirty eight. Justinian the emperor." Emperor who we see was at Constantinople, walking through the general Belisarius was the power that overthrew the three kingdoms, represented by the three horns, and the reason for their overthrow was their adherence to Arianism and opposition to the Orthodox Catholic faith. Okay. Vigilus ascended the papal chair in 538 AD under the military protection of Belisarius. History of the Christian Church, volume 3, page 327. Okay. So, Vigilus basically ascended the papal chair in Rome, and he was under military protection. So, this actually started to become the beginning of the temporal political aspect of the papacy. It was, the seed was planted, let's just put it that way, and the seed eventually grew. From Mervyn Maxwell, God Cares, Volume 1, page 129, quote, Catholic emperors of the Eastern Empire found ways to help the Pope by eliminating three of the Aryan tribes. 
these Aryan type nations. So again, you know, these emperors of the Eastern Empire found ways to help the Pope. The Pope needed their assistance, essentially, you know, essentially. They needed the military might of the Eastern Empire. So they needed the political aspect of the Eastern Empire. <clears throat> These Aryan-type nations would not agree with the Pope's plans. The Catholic Emperor Zeno, 474-491, arranged a treaty with the Ostrogoths. In 487, which resulted in the education of the Kingdom of, Ari of the Aryan, Harulis in 492, and the Catholic Emperor Justinian, 527 to 565, exterminated the Aryan Vandals in 534, and significantly broke the power of the Aryan Ostrogoths in 538. Thus were Daniel's three horns, the Harulis, the, the, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths plucked up by the roots. And again, these came out of what? The Western Roman Empire, Europe. This came out of Europe, folks. This, is, this did not come out of the Eastern Empire. People today are really confusing that fact. Okay? The Lord shows Daniel many years prior that after the fall of the pagan kingdom of Rome, or the fourth global kingdom, would arise another power that would seek to regain this global kingdom for its own evil purposes. Daniel saw that when pagan Rome fell, it was split into ten kingdoms. He even saw that three of the nations that were part of that split wouldn't go along with the new plans to regain this global kingdom. What type of kingdom was this that was so evil that three nations were willing to die to prevent its rise? We will discuss this in a detail later, and just as Daniel was shown by the Lord, it all happened with perfect timing. History records perfectly every step of Rome in this regard. This is what's so amazing about studying prophecy in the last days. We have history to look back on. We can actually match historic events with prophetic utterances in the word of the Christian God. <clears throat> now, Antichrist is to receive its seat and authority from Rome. Okay. <clears throat> well, in Revelation 13, 4, and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. They worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So who is this dragon in prophecy? Well, according to Revelation 12:9, it is Satan. And as we know, Satan never stands before man in his true form. He's not allowed this option. 1 Corinthians 10:13 explains why. Okay, so he must possess men to do his will. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 10:13. 1 Corinthians 10:13 states, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. That is so important today. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Okay? That's not transubstantiation, folks. I mean, that, that's, that's not a wafer. That is not a, some people call it a Jesus cookie. Okay? That is not... Uh, transforming the blood, the, the literal bread and the literal wine into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. 
okay, because this is pretty, this is explained clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. For we, meaning us, the temple, being many, are one bread, and that one bread is, the, is one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. I just wanted to clear that out. <clears throat> so he must possess men to do his will. At this time, the dragon was attacking the Christian faith. It was Rome it chose to administer its hatred. This is not something anyone needs convincing of. It is an open fact of the historic record. fact is, even the gospel portrays its definition of the true identity of the dragon at this time as well. There was a Roman official who seeks to kill baby Jesus, causing the deaths of many baby boys. A Roman governor condemns Jesus to die. A Roman soldier whips him. A Roman band of soldiers beat and mock Jesus. A Roman executioner crucifies Jesus. A Roman official seals the tomb of Jesus. A Roman squad of soldiers keep watch on the tomb of Jesus. A Roman governor places all followers of Jesus in peril. A Roman Colosseum is where Christians were fed to lions, etc., etc., Rome most assuredly allowed the dragon's will to be enacted back then just as it does today. Rome is all the dragon can hope to become. Pagan Rome is his masterpiece. Looking at the popes of today, as well as times past, one can see absolute Roman rule runs through the veins of this hierarchy. The clothing, the architecture, the laws, the belief structure, the art, the lifestyle, the pharmaceutical religiosity, the political savvy, the global reach, all of it proves this prophecy fulfilled in Roman Catholicism. In fact, Pope Pius IX could have been more accurate when he said, quote, in his Discorsi, page 253, this is an encyclical that he wrote, quote, the Caesar who now addresses you and to whom alone are obedience and fidelity due. Do you know that the popes of Rome basically took the titles of the Caesars? Obviously, Pope Pius IX is claiming to be a Caesar because he says he is a Caesar. What was the titles? What's the ti What's one of the titles of the popes today and when, when they took over? Pontifex Maximus. That was one of the same titles that the Caesars bore. And they took that title and they applied it to themselves. This has to be the only thing I like about the leaders of Roman Catholicism. They are so blinded by their hatred of the truth, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, and 11, that they actually make statements they have no idea allows the remnant Christians a way to expose them in such an exacting manner. They truly have no clue when they expose themselves as Antichrist by admitting to doing those things prophecy proclaims Antichrist will do. For that I am forever appreciative, for I have seen many come out of Rome by merely showing them a prophecy and then showing them a statement made by their own very own leaders. <clears throat> Andrea Lagarde, The Latin Church in the Middle Ages, 1915. Quote, speaking of the time, about 500 A.D., when the Roman Empire was crumbling to pieces, no, the Catholic Church will not descend into the tomb. It will survive the empire. At length, a second empire will arise, and of this empire, the Pope will be the master. More than this, he will be the master of Europe. He will dictate his orders to kings who will obey them. The statement penned in 1915 was boldly accurate of the, of the desires of evil men, for the author stated he will be the master of Europe. And today, this is an open and obvious fact. 
soon this empire of Rome will spread all throughout the world. Need any more proof? The Pope declares himself Caesar and then declares obedience and fidelity are due him and him alone. This is Caesar's heart incarnate. For the Caesars of Rome truly believed they were gods on earth. And today this is the case with the Popes of Rome. I will prove that in graphic detail later. Another blunt fact is Emperor Justinian gave the keys of Rome to the Pope when he declared that a Pope should rule over all the Christian churches of the earth in AD 538, as well as the people of the world. Daniel's vision and revelations, woman on a beast, was born that day. <clears throat> okay, so, here's another um, piece of history here. E.G. McKenzie, Catholic Church, page 14. In 538 A.D., the year when the Ostrogoths collapsed, it was out of the smoking ruins of the Western Roman Empire and after the overthrow of the three Aryan kingdoms that the Pope of Rome emerged as the most important single individual in the West. The head of a closely organized church with a carefully defined creed and faith, vast potential for political influence, dozens of writers had pointed out that the real survivors of their ancient Roman Empire was the Church of Rome. Antichrist is both a political and religious power. Revelation 17.3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. In prophecy, a woman is defined as a church. Jeremiah 6.2 says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. We also understand the church of Jesus Christ is considered to be the bride of Christ because of many areas of scripture that describe her as such. It is also commonly understood that prophecy defines a beast to be a nation. Daniel 7.17, these great beasts, which are four or four kings, which shall arise over the earth. Daniel 7.23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Even in today's world, nations are described as beasts. The USA is seen as an eagle. Russia is likened unto a bear. And China even carries the image of a dragon. Many years ago, Daniel was given a great vision about all the nations of the earth till the end of time. In this vision, he saw the last beast to be diverse from all the others, which was in Daniel 7.19. But how diverse would it be? According to Revelation 17.3, as we have already seen, this beast will have a woman riding it. Since prophecy defines a woman as a church and a beast as a nation, is there such an entity described in history? Is there a church and state mixed together as one same place today? Yes, there is. There is only one place on earth has ever done this, and that's the Vatican of the Roman Catholic Church, which has been established upon this type of union and is now finalizing plans to use this prophesied church and state structure to obtain global rule in the place of pagan Rome. And also, I do want to point out the aspect of this woman, which is, you know, a woman in prophecy is symbolized as a church, okay? Now, I want to bring you to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 5. And go to verse 11. 
Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. Okay, so this ephah is, represents all the world, all the earth. This is an ephah that goeth forth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So lifted up this talent of lead, and there is a woman within the midst of it. Okay? And again, a woman is a church, right? Okay. What did, and then, uh, let's see. And Zechariah replies, and sees this woman in this ephah, and he said, this is wickedness. Mm. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast a weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So he opened it up, this is wickedness, and he closed it. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women. This is interesting. And the wind was in their wings. For they had wings, like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. If you know anything about the animals and the difference between clean and unclean animals in the Bible, you will realize that the stork is an unclean bird. And here are two women. And lifting up this ephah. What's really interesting is obviously these two women were wicked as well. I don't know how one might be able to decipher this, but speaking as there were two, and they lift this ephah up between earth and heaven. Could one represent the mother and the other one represent the daughter? Because all you got to do is look at the wings. The wings are the wings of a stork, the unclean bird. What does it say about Mystery Babylon and Revelation? It is a cage of unclean birds. Verse 10, Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established, and set there upon her own base. Okay, well, we know, literally speaking, Shinar represented Babylon. And literal Babylon, okay, will not be risen up again. If we apply the spiritual aspect of this, where is Mystery Babylon located today? Where it where is her base? It's a woman riding on the beast on seven hills. And it's a church. And she claims to be the mother. 
There's only one church that claims that, folks. And there's other churches that are following suit after her. Could it be that they're lifting this ephah up between the earth and the heaven, helping her to fill that cup to the brim? Oh, I can think so. So I just wanted to bring out Zechariah 5 because I think that is a very interesting passage. So, again, Antichrist will have his church and state sit on seven hills. Revelation 17:3. So he carried me away into the spirit into the he so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names and blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. By the way, carried me away is the same wording used in Revelation 4:1 when uh, you know the trumpet said come up hither. Those I like to say that means a rapture. No. Carried me away. I mean, look at the wording there. It's the same thing, folks. It, 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 John was carried away in vision, okay, in the spirit, into the wilderness. That's all that means. Now, before I define these seven heads, I would like to remind you that I am not giving my private interpretation of this prophetic symbol. The Word of God states we are never to do this. See Second Peter one twenty, according to Revelation. Okay. The beast the woman is sitting on that we already defined as a Vatican church state conglomerate. We have will have seven heads, but how does prophecy define those seven heads? Now bear in mind, this is the scarlet colored beast in Revelation 17. This is not this is slightly different than the one in Revelation 13. Okay? Even though it's the same beast. But it's, but its characters kind of enhance, the definitions basically are enhanced, so to speak, okay? Because obviously the set, one of the heads in the Revelation 13 beast had a wound, and that's identified with as a papacy, okay? Here we have this woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast, which is being identified as the Vatican State. Okay. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and continue. The Word of God states we are never to do this, you know, uh, our own private interpretation. According to Revelation, that beast the woman is sitting on that we already defined as a Vatican Church State conglomerate will have seven heads. But how does prophecy define those seven heads? Look just a few verses lower to find out. The angel that is showing John this vision actually tells him point blank what those heads actually mean. And here's a mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Okay. Um, looking into the strong accordance, how is that word mountains defined? It is defined from probably from an obsolete oral to rise or rear, perhaps akin. Um, and it means mountain or mount or hill. So it could also be translated as a hill. Okay, so the word mountain can also be translated out as a hill. Is there a church and state sitting on seven hills somewhere on this world? Catholic Encyclopedia, page 529. It's within the city of Rome called the City on Seven Hills that the entire area of Vatican State proper is now confined. Geographyabout.com website answers the quarry. What are the seven hills of Rome? Rome is known to be built upon seven hills. Rome was said to have been founded when Romulus and Remus, twin sons of Mars, ended up at the foot of the hill Palatine 
and founded the city. The other six hills are Capitoline, the seat of government, Coronel, Limino, Esquiline, Kayleen, and Aventine. One of the hills are called Capitoline. Then we have a seat of government called Capitol Hill. Kind of interesting with those parallels. Encyclopedia Britannica. Seven hills of Rome, group of hills, on or about which the ancient city of Rome was built. The original city of Romulus was built upon Palatine Hill, number one, which was the other hills are the Capitoline, number two, Coronal, number three, Veminal, number four, Esquiline, number five, Quailine, number six, Aventine, and number seven, known respectively in Latin as the Mons Capitolinus, Mons Quarinalis, Mons Veminalis, Mons Quilinus, Mons Sailus, and Mons Aventinus. Okay. Understand first that Daniel 7.23 tells us this beast will be diverse from all kingdoms. How diverse, you ask? As we define the prophetic symbols, we understand this woman that is sitting on the beast is actually a church and a nation combined. This is what Daniel said. There will be a kingdom that will arise that will be totally different than any other kingdom that ever existed on earth. The Vatican fits this perfectly. Never was there a nation that was both a nation and a church at the same time. Never, and even if there was, did it even have seven hills to sit on, as we see Rome, Italy, has been doing since its inception. You will search online for seven hills, and you will see numerous pages with maps of the city of Rome. <clears throat> the Antichrist is to rule the world for 1,260 years. Okay, and I just basically covered that. Um, 1798, General Berthier made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. Encyclopedia Britannica, 1948. And again, um, some people apply the start of this at 538 AD. Others apply it at 606 and have it going to 1866. Um, but regardless of that fact, that... There is a 1,260-year fulfillment. It did happen, and General Berthier did abolish the papal government. He did do that, you know, and he did establish a secular one. He did, he basically wanted a Roman republic, and they did get a republic, a secular government. It was short-lived, and then the papacy did get their seat back, kinda. It was very. I would have to say it wasn't that strong, okay? But really in 1870, you know, now this is according to other historical, you know, uh, documents, and that's basically uh, the, the final nail in the coffin as far as the deadly wound, okay? Um, and obviously in 1929, the deadly wound was healed. Okay, so, and again, the Pope dies August 1799. Okay, so, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into capti captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. So, documented Roman Catholic source states, half Europe thought that with the Pope, the papacy was dead. Joseph Rickenby, the modern papacy, lectures on the history, history of religion. Lecture 24, London Catholic Truth Society, 1910, page 1. Okay. The prophecy is telling us that the beast will be destroyed with the sword. 
sword equals military in this instance at the end of its reign of exactly 1,260 years of killing Christians. We just learned by the previous prophecy that this didn't in fact occur. But to further illustrate the fact that the prophecy also said the beast must go into captivity and die there, we find that history does tell us that the Pope was removed from the Vatican, was placed in exile, and then died. Okay. And then this deadly wound would later heal. Um, and we just saw the deadly wound was given to the papacy to Napoleon in 1798. The Vatican still continued as a church, however, but she was completely stripped of her civil and political power, just as the prophecy declared. Then suddenly, in 1929, we see the Italian government recognizing Vatican City once again as an independent state. This political move once again made the Pope a religio-political power, just as prophecy said the mortal wound that was administered in 1798 by Napoleon was supposed to be healed. Notice how the newspaper of that day actually used a prophetic language without realizing it. Mussolini and Cardinal Gaspari signed historic Roman pact. Quote, the Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. And affixing the autographs to the memorable document, healing the wound of many years, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Pope becomes ruler of the state again. Rome, June 7th, from 11 o'clock this morning, there was another sovereign independent state in the world. At that time, Premier Mussolini, as Italian foreign minister, represents King Victor Emmanuel, the first Italian premier ever to cross the threshold of the Vatican, exchanged with Cardinal Gaspari, Papal Secretary of State, representing Pope Pius XI, ratification of the treaty signed at the Lateran Palace on February 11th. By that simple act, the sovereign independent state of Vatican City came into existence. <clears throat> Revelation 17:8, the beast that was is not and yet is. Okay, so so the beast that was. Okay, this is basically how this goes with, between Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. The beast is one that was. Okay, Revelation 13 is not the mortal wound and yet is. Woman on the scarlet colored beast. Okay? That's basically roughly how you can connect those dots as far as connecting those two beasts together. Okay? And they kind of go together. I mean, I know I said they were different, but they're not really different. They do go together. It's just uh, one was describing the political aspect of this beast, the other was just, is describing both the political and religious aspect, describing the differences of how it will be different from the previous beast in Daniel chapter 7. Okay? <clears throat> Here's a fact. Many know that the devil always seeks to mock a counterfeit truth in the word of God relating to Christ and his ministry. For example, the virgin birth was counterfeited by the birth of Tammuz, the son of Nimrod, on December 25th. Have you ever noticed this, though? Jesus walked the earth exactly three and a half years before being killed. He then resurrected, just as prophecy declared he would. The Antichrist walked about killing people for exactly three and a half prophetic years, or 1,260 days, which is actually 1,260 years in reality. His main man, the Pope, is then killed by Napoleon when he dies in exile and the Vatican is no longer in power. But the Antichrist also resurrected in 1929. This prophetic jurisprudence is no mistake. Plus, it now leads to my favorite prophecy of all when exposing Rome and its true satanic fruit. 
Antichrist is to be a blasphemous power. Okay. Revelation 13.1 And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of, bla the name of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is biblically defined. Okay. Now, the Jews answered Jesus in John 10.33. Okay. We're just going to go and read that. John 10.33. I'm almost done here. I got one more thing I want to go over. And that's going to be like a somewhat recent um, addition to these characteristics. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? Then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Okay, so, there's one definition of blasphemy, is, you know, you, someone being a fleshly man, who makes himself to be as God on earth. Okay, well, all you got to do is, Look at history once again. <sighs> From Catholic National July 1895. Quote, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. Pope Leo XIII's encyclical letter of June 20th, 1894. Quote, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Labian Cosart's History of the Councils, Volume 14, Column 109, quote, For thou art the shepherd, thou art the physician, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. Finally, thou art another god on earth. <clears throat> the whole Unum Sanctum, issued by Pope Boniface VIII, reads as follows, The Roman Pontiff judges all men but is judged by no one. We declare, assert, define, and pronounce to be subject to be subject to the Roman pontiff as to every human creature necessary for salvation. So salvation doesn't come from no other man but the name Christ Jesus. That's null and void. No. Salvation comes through the church. Salvation comes through the Roman pontiff. You want to be saved? You want heaven? You must bow to him and you must acknowledge him as your savior. Do you have to profess that before men? Mm -hmm. Well, kind of look at the aspect of the mark of the beast. Okay. Notice that God has a mark too. But he requires it to be written in your mind and in your hands. Your right hand is your work, okay? Your right hand is your strength. Your mind is basically representative of your heart. Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where's your mind following? Who is your mind following? Is it following the God of the Bible? Is it following God? Or is it following Baal? The sun god? Well, when I ask the question, 
do you have does does this does uh the beast require this to be to be acknowledged by all men? Well, yes and no. Because he doesn't necessarily say, I follow the Pope. All you have to do is just do it in nature, do it in deed. If you're if if you look at yourself and if your characters represent that of the characters of the Harlot Church and the Scarlet Harlot's daughters, then you are acknowledging the Pope or the papacy as Savior. Because all the daughters are coming back to Mama, folks. It's happening. And it's been going on for quite some time. <clears throat> that which was spoken of Christ, thou hast subdued all things under his feet. This is what the Pope is saying. May well seem verified in me. I have the authority of the King of Kings. I am all in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the Vicar of God, have but one consistory, and I am able to do all that God can do. The Savior himself is the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus Christ, no man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff, and only if they be united to him can men be saved by the Roman pontiff as the victor. For the Roman pontiff is the victor, victor of Christ, and his personal representative on earth. Now, Pope John the Twenty-Third, in his homily to the bishops and faithful assisting in his coronation on November Fourth, nineteen fifty-eight. That was not that long ago, so they are still claiming this to this very day. This judicial authority will even include the power to forgive sin. Okay. Now, by the way, claiming to be God is only one biblical definition of blasphemy. Another is claiming to have the power to forgive men's sins. Mark 7 states, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Is it possible the Roman Catholic Vatican does this as well? Can prophecy be that accurate in exposing this evil entity? Yes, it can. The confessional of the Roman Catholic Church is indeed yet another identifiable feature exposing the Vatican as Antichrist dwelling. They openly declare a man dressed as a priest has the power to forgive sins of men. Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 12, Article, Pope, page 25, 265, sorry. This judicial authority will even include the power to forgive sin, end quote. Here's another quote from Duties and Dignities of the Priest, page 27. Quote, And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest. That's very unique. And either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse to give absolution provided the penitent is capable of it. So this is why... Okay, I'm going to stop right here. Okay? This is why... Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the Scarlet Harlot, Mystery Babylon, okay? This is why Babylon is labeled confusion. Because here the Pope claims to be God on earth, but yet he sets his priests <laughs> to say that God is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest. So if the Pope is openly defying God by claiming that he is God, then even God himself 
<laughs> has to go to a confessional, which means the Pope has to go to a confessional, which leads to a very, very interesting topic, and that's called the Society of Jesus, right? Because there's a pecking order in this whole chain of command, and the Jesuit Superior General is labeled as the Black Pope. And, you know, it's like the priest had to confess to, I think, the priest confesses to the bishop, the bishop confesses to the cardinal, the cardinal confesses to the pope, and the pope has to confess to the superior general. I think that's basically how it works. So God himself, the one who claims that he is God above all in all, has to get forgiveness of sins from the priest, from the superior general of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order. This is why <laughs> Babylon means confusion, okay? Because it is a very, very confusing church. So confusing, it's so obvious to point out, which is why I don't understand why so many people miss it. Oh, it's Jerusalem. Oh, it's America. It's New York. It, Okay. <laughs> Antichrist is to be able to influence the entire world to worship him. Revelation 13:8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. To worship is to be in agreement with that which you worship. Are not all Christians in agreement that the Lord Jesus Christ is correct and is truth? Strong's Concordance defines the word worship in this way. Okay. <clears throat> it means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. What do all the leaders, political leaders, do when they go and visit the Vatican, when they go and visit the Pope? Look at all the pictures, folks. What do they see? What do you see them doing? You see them kissing the ring. And that's an act of worship. To kiss the hand, two towards one, a token of reverence among the Orientals. Okay. Another one is to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. And the New Testament, by kneeling or prostration, to do homage to one. Or make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. <clears throat> in the military in the pecking order of that. One, you know, the E-class is to stand at attention when an officer walks in and they are to salute. To salute is also an act of worship that's expressing respect or making supplication. Hitler had, you know, this salute where he had his hands straight out and lifted somewhat. You know that is also an old Roman salute. You see ISIS doing that. You see terrorist organizations doing that. Even the Catholic Church itself does the Roman salute. So again, that is another sign of worship. It doesn't necessarily have to be bowing down. Okay. Worship can be done by simple agreement. However, it can also be done by an open act. 
Okay, so all you have to do is agree with the individual. In Daniel 3, we see that that as a fact, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar set up before the people, the entire nation bowed, of course, but those three students of Daniel bluntly refused. Were they fanatics, as some would call them today? Or was God about to define that act as an open act of worship, regardless of what the person felt in his heart? For example, do you honestly believe all those people worshipped that idol the king set up that day merely because he asked them to? Could it be the majority of them were bowing out of uh, fear and not worship? Truth is, the king stated plainly in Daniel 3.6 that whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Common sense affords us the reality that it was fear that caused them to bow. Yet Daniel's three students still refused. Could it be just a simple act of worship is enough to commit the sin? Indeed it is. For this is confirmed when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into that furnace of fire. It was so hot that the men that threw them were engulfed in flames and killed by doing, and killed by doing so. However, Jesus Christ himself appeared in the flames to prevent harm to those three young men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. The soldiers, the executioners, they were killed outside of the furnace. That's how hot it was. Instantly. It was so graphic, in fact, that King Nebuchadnezzar himself was moved to believe when he saw those three young men walking into flame without any ill effects and at the same time looking upon his own muscle-bound guards lying dead at the entrance of that furnace. He knew something amazing happened that day. He realized that merely bowing before that statue he set up was sin. Daniel records this king's reaction rather well. Daniel 3, 24 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, was astonished, astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake, and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. <laughs> then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth in the midst of the fire, and the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was the hair of their heads singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Okay. Do you realize this deals with idolatry? One of the characteristics of the Antichrist was it'll think to change times and laws. It has changed the times and the calendars. No longer do we keep sunset to sunset, but now we have a 24-hour, I mean, we still have a 24-hour day, but it's from midnight to midnight. Okay? In the late, in the mid-16th century, Pope Gregory Um, no, it was before that, um, I believe. Pope Gregory changed, this is why we have the Gregorian calendar. In October, I think it's 1562, I believe, um, took out 10 days of October. So he had October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and he had the 14th. So he, I mean, so he, and that's why basically 
you have to subtract two days from February, okay, in order to get 365 because you add each day per month. 3130, 3130, 3130, 3130. Because that act alone. Because obviously we are in a solar cycle of time because that's how that's how the calendar is revolved. It's revolved around the sun. Okay, for 365 days a year and these types of things. Okay. And they had to do this, and they had to add a day each month, first month, second month, third month, fourth month, and so on and so forth. Because, and they had to take away two days in one of the months, adding a leap year here and there, in order to account for the change. But what they failed to realize is they could they cannot change the times. They cannot change the times because guess what? We still have a seven-day week, don't we? <laughs> okay. And um, another thing, think about this. When it comes to the Sabbath commandment, look at the calendar in front of you. You have Saturday and you have Sunday. Do you realize when you look at the vision in Ezekiel of the priests standing at the temple and, their head, and they had their backs um, towards the east? Well, if you look at the calendar sitting in front of you, the calendar, Saturday, is on the left side now, isn't it? Or, I mean, the, the right side. And Sunday's on the left. East and west. One and the other. So those that are acknowledging Sunday worship, Sunday rest as a Sabbath, as a rest, they got their backs faced towards God. Out of the yeah, out of the east or the west. I might have that mixed up, but <laughs> but clearly you see what I'm getting at, you know. And those that acknowledge Sunday, obviously, Sunday is on the right side of the work week, or on the left side of the work week. Saturday is on the right side of the work week. So I just figured that was interesting to point out. Now, also idolatry. This was a graven image, okay? Um, and you think back to the Reformation times. There are, I mean, Fox the Book of Martyrs and also all the horrible accounts. I remember um, when I read Lecture 7 of Romanism and the Reformation, there was a portion in there that was so he he went through <coughs> the tales of the Inquisition. Okay, here these men were thrown into a fiery furnace with heat so blazing that it scorched the men as soon as they came near that furnace. And they said, "No, we will not bow down to the statue. We will not bow down to your image. We uphold the law of God. We will not bow down. And even if He does not deliver us, we still will not bow down. But God is able to deliver us. It's that kind of faith, folks. You don't need to worry about what's going to happen to you, at all, folks. These guys that suffer such terrible persecutions. There was a point that I read in that book, Romanism and Reformation." 
that there was individuals that were put on on, on spans or spats, okay, and they were put over a fire. <clears throat> kind of like if you would have a pig roast. You have a pig, and you're slowly cooking them over the fire. Yeah, that. Some of these people were slowly burnt. How in the heck did they feel no pain? They had to have felt some kind of pain, but they did not realize they were feeling pain because you know what? Just like Stephen said, I see the heavens open. Father, forgive mine enemies, for they know not what they do. He basically said the same thing. You know, it's just amazing. And that's the act of faith. That is what faith can do for you. And that is the faith we need today. That is the faith that needs to be rekindled. Because without that faith, Without the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is why this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. <laughs> Without that faith, you will succumb to the beast. And it's, <laughs> it's possible to have that faith. All you got to do is ask. He's, he's, he's up there waiting for you. He's up there waiting for you to come out of these systems. This This false system of worship. And another thing this little horn does, and I'll close with this, is he would think to change laws. Okay? All you got to do is look at the commandments of God and then go to a Catholic catechism and then what do you see? Well, you see that the second commandment deals with idolatry deals with not to have any graven images or bowing down to them. Catholic Catechism takes that right out. Takes it out. Gone. Why do you think that they have all of these Mary shrines and Mary this and Mary that and all these statues of saints that you can pray to? Even Pope John Paul II now, he's a, he, you know, he's a saint. You can pray to him. You can pray to Pope John Paul II. Folks, that's idolatry. Um, they completely took that commandment out. And so what happened? Well, they're left with nine. So what they did was they basically moved each commandment up one and took tenth one and they split it up into two. I'll give you an example. I am the Lord thy God. You know, this is also one thing they did. They even took phrases out of the commandments. So not only did they remove one whole commandment, move every commandment up one, changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, which they also claim, they also moved everything up one, split the last two commandments, split the last commandment in two to make ten. But not only did they do that, they replaced the phrase Sabbath day with the Lord's day. They also took the first commandment where it says, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They took that whole phrase, out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and took that out. So what does that do? Well, that basically acknowledges all gods, doesn't it? I am Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's all the Catholic commandment says. So now what happened? Jesus Christ, God, is brought lower to a man-centered view, a man-centered religion. God is brought at an even keel with all the other so-called deities. 
folks. Why do you think in Revelation 13 it says, here's the patience and the faith of the saints? Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And the faith of Jesus is the, is the spirit of prophecy. So prophecy is very important. And prophecy is history written in advance. So it is important to study history out. Do we have history perfect? You know what? No, we don't. You know, there's some things that probably have been changed around a little bit. But you know what? There's enough out there to basically confirm what I have confirmed here tonight. So, on next Saturday, next Saturday we're going to look at Daniel's 70 weeks, and we're going to go over a little deception that happened in regarding the 70 weeks. We're going to kind of look at a, we're going to, we're going to kind of look at the intro to futurism, because that kind of corresponds with the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, I do hope and pray that you're blessed by this um, broadcast. I am going to do another broadcast tomorrow. It'll probably be around 9, 9.30. Just say 9.30. And I'm going to be covering the 501c3 aspect, and we're going to be covering the homosexual agenda and the passing in the Supreme Court on June 26th. There are so many more characteristics of this Antichrist power. Um, I only listed a few of them. Okay. And um, I think I only did like 10 or 11 of them. And there's 15 more. As a matter of fact, I want you to read this chart. I mean, I posted a link. I don't know if anybody else is in there, but I'll post it anyway. And go and check that out. <clears throat> so, again... What it boils down to is faith. Obviously, love, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Okay? Without love, faith will profit you nothing. Okay? Love for your neighbor and love for God. And that uh, those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, and, that, and all of that law is the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength is the first table of stone dealing with your with your duty to God and loving your neighbor as yourself is your duty toward the man. And on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And and uh, we need that faith. We need the faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We need that faith of Daniel and uh, in order to survive and make it through to the end. You know, there are going to be those that are called to be martyrs. But you know what? So be it. God is in control. You don't need to worry about what to say when that time comes. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. And will make utterance for you. 
Just like as uh, one of the reformers said when he was <laughs> when he was being burnt at the stake, and they lit the faggots, and he shouted out loud, "Play the man, Master Ridley." On this day we shall light a candle that shall never be put out. And even though that light has gone dim, that light is not out. And it's that light that needs to be rekindled. And with broadcasts like these, hopefully there's a light that's being shined. And there are others out there doing this work as well. So, again, I hope and pray that you're that you have been blessed by the information you've received today. And uh, until tomorrow, 9.30 Eastern, it'll be 6.30 Pacific. Truth be told, truth be known, stay safe. God bless. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.